Jeez, I've outdone myself. I feel like I have a lot to live up to now. <laughs> it's good, thank you. <clears throat> I'm looking back, wondering whether it's possible to recall the when or the why. One thing I do know, there was no single defining moment where it hit me out of a clear blue sky like one of those falling anvils in the cartoons. No, it was more a series of small moments that to an outsider might look kind of cliched, but I can't help that. You might say, Daniel, aren't you making too much of this? We're all different in our own way. Yes, but my kind of different made things awkward. I always felt it had to be disguised. But maybe that's just me. I wouldn't like to say I am typical or atypical or even stereotypical. I don't mean to suggest that this has relevance to any other person's life. I can't speak for others. I can barely speak for myself. So, anyway, this is the way I remember it. At six years old, my father wants to sign me up to play soccer with our local team. I have absolutely no interest in kicking a ball anywhere except maybe over the garden fence where hopefully no one will find it. I am not the kind of six-year-old boy who loves sports and trucks and bulldozers. My kind of six-year-old boy smiles dreamily and plays with his sister's Barbie dolls. My father's solution is to offer me a bribe. This works up to a point. Every Saturday morning, my body is more or less present on the soccer field. However, my mind is elsewhere, meditating on the love that dare not speak its name, which at this stage of my life happens to be Chinese dumplings. All I can eat after every game. Don't ever mention soccer around me because I'll visualize steamed prawn dumplings and start slobbering like Pavlov's dog. At seven years old, bored off by dumplings for my second season on the field. My main aim is to avoid going anywhere remotely near the ball or, God forbid, the pack of seven-year-old sociopaths who are charging dementedly up and down the field looking for something or someone to kick. On one memorable occasion, alerted by the shouting of the excitable man who is our coach, I look down to discover that the ball has rolled to a stop next to me. I stare at it with wild surprise. Oh my gosh, what is that doing there? Parents on the sidelines, including mine, are jumping up and down and yelling incoherently. At this point, I become acutely aware that a swarm of seven-year-olds is bearing down on me with madness in their eyes and murder in their hearts. They want the ball, the one lying at my feet, like an improvised explosive device. I am in danger of imminent involvement in a contact sport. I conclude that I must act. I kick it. The ball somehow goes in. I have scored. Wow. What are the chances? The goalkeeper hasn't moved. He's frozen in horror. He looks vaguely familiar. I have scored in my own net. Oops. Over on the sideline, the coach is incandescent with rage. I have never seen anyone quite so red in the face apart from in cartoons or on morning television. We lose the match. 
My father tells me it is only a stupid game and not to worry about it, but his eyes are kind of glazed as if they are caught in the headlights of an oncoming truck. The coach takes my father aside and suggests that maybe Daniel's heart really isn't in this particular sport. Actually, the truth is Daniel's heart is not to be found in any sport. Daniel's heart resides elsewhere in the next scenario. At nine years old, I have a friend called Lawrence who lives in my street. He is utterly indifferent to sports and passionate about steamed dumplings. Clearly, it was meant to be. Most days after school, we lie around together in a hammock having intense conversations about the glamorous pop stars and television celebrities we adore and memorable Chinese lunches we have consumed. One awful day, Lawrence, te <coughs> Pardon me. Lawrence tells me his family is moving back to Hong Kong. I'm inconsolable. Goodbye, Lawrence. Hello, heartache. At 10 years old, the year of the Spice Girls, posh, ginger, sporty, baby and scary, but still my beating heart, the endlessly wonderful Spice Girls sweep into my life via my sister Stephanie. Together with her friends, she forms a kind of tribute act incorporating makeup, costumes, dance moves. They learn all the lyrics to Wannabe and want to perform the song every day during school lunch breaks. Yo, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. My sister Stephanie is Posh Spice, which makes her almost famous at our school. I bask in reflected glory. I am almost famous once removed, which makes me not quite almost famous. If you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. The girls sing with a logic and sincerity that only an 11-year-old can bring to those lyrics. The singing is off-key, the costumes unconvincing, the makeup a tad overdone, but oh, how badly I want to be a part of it. A real part, not just the brother of a fake posh spice. So then, this is my confession to you. I have never told anyone else this before. I was a wannabe Spice Girl. At 13 years old, most of the boys at school are obsessed with grim, brooding superheroes with pumped-up torsos and superpowers. I find I myself am not totally immune to this whole superhero mania, but I suspect I approach it from a different angle. I appreciate a colourful costume as much as the next musical theatre aficionado, just as long as it is done tastefully and with flair. My favourite superheroes are the X-Men because I feel there is a connection. They are part of a mutant minority who must protect themselves by keeping their powers a secret from the majority. I totally empathise with the X-Men. I too have a troubling secret power that I must keep to myself at this point in my life. At 15 years old, I come out of my shell. I have been elected the president of my school science club and it has gone to my head big time. I adopt lofty cosmological views. I see that the universe is incalculably vast and that the current obsessions of our species are going to look absurd one day. I deliver passionate lectures during science club lunchtime meetings. I say things like, on that first day of contact with an advanced alien civilization, our mating rituals will be seen for what they are. Just silly. These lectures are an absolute triumph. My enthralled audience lap it up. All three of them give me a standing ovation every time. And courage, I go on to cause a stir at a school assembly whilst presenting my science club address. I ask the students, teachers and visiting dignitaries, how many of them have given much thought as to how an alien species in the Alpha Centauri star system might go about reproduction? There are no raised hands. It seems they haven't given that much thought at all, or possibly ever.
I asked them to imagine the, exist- the existence of a species of superintelligent asexual gelatinous blobs. This doesn't go over too well either. Furthermore, I say, let us imagine that these asexual super smart, super smart blobs reproduce by cell division. So, what are we to make of this? The audience stares back at me blankly, not making much of it at all, apparently. I spell it out for them by declaring that the sexual practices of any species, including Homo sapiens, are not sacred or profane. The whole of humanity is greater than the sum of our private parts. Tish. So, let's just get over our penis and vagina fictions, okay? The headmaster hurriedly winds up my presentation and I am escorted from the podium shouting, For goodness sake, people of planet Earth, lighten up! At 16 years old, I tell my father about how things are with me. It goes okay, I guess, but not as well as I'd expected. In fact, he is shocked. He tries to tell me I may be confused or bisexual or ambivalent like the ancient Greeks. I tell him I am firmly on one end of the spectrum where the gay boys hang out making big eyes at each other. I wonder why he never saw through my disguise over the years. I suppose it doesn't take much effort to disguise something that even the people who are closest to you really don't want to see. After a while, Dad hugs me hard. He is scared for me and wants to protect me from the ignorant ones, and God knows there are a lot of them out there. I reassure him I'll be okay. I've lived with this for a long time, just like the X-Men. I know that the price of this superpower is a certain amount of vigilance. At 17 years old, Friday night is church fellowship night. I like Christians. Well, you know, the ones I meet at fellowship anyway. I find them kindly and unworldly, like the cast of a 1950s Hollywood musical. Anyway... This particular Friday night, we have a bonfire at the back of the church grounds, just the senior fellowship group. Robert, the youth minister, asks each of us to share something about ourselves we might like the group to pray about. When it is my turn, the warm, inclusive ambience goes straight to my head. I stand up and reveal my secret identity like Clark Kent whipping off the spectacles. Surprise! I'm gay! No, really, guys, I'm serious. This is who I really am. And if you would like to pray for me to be accepted and loved as I am, then that would be great. The smiles slip away. There is silence, just the crackling of the fire. The ambience is no longer warm or inclusive. The looks on their faces, oh my god, you should see the look on their faces. Frowning, disturbed, this could get ugly. It seems not inconceivable that they're going to burn me at the stake like Joan of Arc. Or maybe stone me. Robert certainly looks prepared to cast the first stone. Then one of my friends stands up, takes a deep breath, and says that he doesn't care whether I'm gay or straight or whatever. 
someone else does the same, then everybody's patting me on the back in a group hug-in, and I feel hugely relieved. It's horribly patronising, of course, but preferable to being burnt at the stake or stoned to death, so I go along with it. At this point, I notice Robert, the youth minister, is staring at me like the dark lord of Beelzebub has materialised amongst the church flock. Robert coldly thanks me for my contribution and moves on to the next person. I notice that he forgets to pray for me. The next day, Robert sends me a text message suggesting I might like to find another fellowship group to attend. And he posts me a book, a kind of Christian handbook explaining what is wrong with me. This book suggests that my father must have been a poor role model. It says he is to blame due to his supposed coldness and indifference. Apparently, I'm sexually drawn to men because I've been seeking the father figure I never really had. Dad reads the handbook from cover to cover. Surprisingly enough, his reaction isn't cold and indifferent. In fact, he says he's going to punch Robert on the nose the next time he sees him. Together, Dad and I write a letter to the church elders' committee just to let them know how disgusting and ignorant and bigoted we find their handbook. And I insist we add that somewhere... In the Alpha Centauri star system, there may be asexual gelatinous blobs who are laughing at them so hard their heads would roll off. (laughs) If they had heads, which is debatable. The church elders, I mean.